This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. The heart is where the scriptures seat our thinking. The brain is hardware. Scripture is interested in software. What's actually going on there? What's the agenda? Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. My name is Jonathan Master. I am joined here by the illustrious Dr. James Dalzell. James, how are you? I don't know about illustrious, but uh, I'm well and uh, excited to be here. We're interviewing today uh, a former pastor of mine. Yeah, I'm excited about it as well. He is now professor of practical theology at Westminster Seminary, California, uh, Dr. Craig Troxell, and he just wrote a book called With All Your Heart, which is published by Crossway. And so, Craig, we're so glad that you're willing to join us today to talk about your work. Oh, it's good to be here. Uh, one of the things I wanted to start with was this, just a, a kind of definition of what you mean by the heart. I think a lot of times in many of our listeners' experiences, they'll hear things like this, you know, you, you need to understand things in your head, but you also need to have them in your heart, or perhaps in more popular culture situations, they'll talk about following your heart. So what do you mean by the heart? Well, I, yeah, I think there's two ways to look at it. I mean, first of all, we should see heart as one among a cluster of terms that God gives to us to describe the inner person and to reflect the unity of the inner person. Some people have called it the control center. It's the, it's the driver's seat. Um, you know, as Proverbs 4.23 says, it's, it's from here flow all the issues of life. So on the one hand, um, every time we see the word heart in scripture, we need to appreciate that it refers to this unity of the inner person. So I think you have to start there. But what makes heart different from other words that we have in Scripture is that the heart in Scripture has a threefold capacity. There's a, a cognitive element that's attached to the heart, like you were just alluding to people talk about head versus heart. But actually, in Scripture, uh, all those cognitive intellectual functions, memory, imagination, your thought life are all attached to the heart. Um, that's the first function. The second are the desires of the heart. What is it that I that we want? Uh, what do we crave? What do we long for? And therefore, what do we get emotional about? So a lot of times people attach the feelings to this part of the heart, the desires, and rightly so. But what the Puritans call the affections, where have I placed my affections, the affections of my heart? Then the third part would be, you know, the will of the heart, those volitional things, my choices and my decisions. So the way I like to put it is we're talking then about what we know, what we love and what we choose. Um, that all three of these compose the heart. So by the heart, I think we mean, you know, both these things that hold them together, the unity of who we are within, but then understanding too that there are places in the scripture where one of these, these nuances is really coming out uh, in terms of the intellectual side of the heart or heart there referring to the desires or other places, the heart in terms of the, the strength uh, of the will or the lack of strength. Of the of the will of the heart, so that's what that's what we mean, uh, and that's what Scripture, I think, is saying when it refers to the heart. I think that holistic understanding and definition is is so critical because sometimes I think, even among Christians, they will define their their faith as a matter of the heart, and what they mean by that is not what you just described, but what they mean by that is you know I I don't I don't think about it, I don't subject it to any kind of critical reasoning. Um, I don't care about 
evidence is I'm just simply almost what we would mean when we say we're going with our gut. And Mm -hmm. what you're saying is, no, the heart, biblically speaking, is is a holistic term for all of the faculties of our inner being. Absolutely. And, And I talk about that in the book, you know, about going with your gut. And there's truth in that, but it's not enough. And I think people will be surprised. Uh, there's a lot of scripture in this book to show that the heart is is where the scriptures seat our, our thinking. You know, some people say, wasn't well, that the brain? Well, brain is hardware. Scripture is interested in <laughs> software. What's actually going on there? What's the agenda? And this is where, the, you know, the reformers and the reformed faith tradition has been so helpful to understand that when we talk about free will, when we talk about the heart, we talk about our thinking, how interrelated it is, and especially thinking about how our thought life has an agenda. Uh, all of our thoughts have a motive, and it shows how, how the will and the desires are influencing what I'm thinking. Because sometimes I'm thinking um, along a certain line saying I'm right because it's what I want to be right. It's in my best interest. You know, I can fool myself and to thinking that this is the, the right way to see it. But the reason why is because I have a vested interest in this result. And a lot of a lot of times we're not interested in that sort of inspection of scripture to come in and kind of search out my motives. And why why is it that you're so interested in this? You know, it's, it's like when, as a pastor, anger is very, very useful to you as a pastor when you're talking to somebody to get angry and you're asking yourself, why is this person so invested in this? And it gives you a real, a, a real, a beeline into what's really going on in their thinking. Now we need to apply that same, you know, introspection to ourselves. Why am I so angry uh, about this? But I think it's, it's been very helpful as a grid for me asking myself the right questions, and as a pastor asking people the the right questions. And I should probably say this too, getting a little bit off, but but I think it's important to say. This theology of the heart is Puritan theology. This is this is the grid they worked with. I mean, this is not a novel thing. It also lines up very well with contemporary biblical scholarship. If you open up any contemporary scholarly dictionary, um, you would see this same sort of treatment. So this is there's nothing new here. And in one sense, people might be saying, "Why should I read the book?" You know, I think people should read your book. And I'm thinking of your first section where you talk about the heart's mind, which sounds almost oxymoronic to a sentimentalized view of the heart, where Mm. it's not something thinking through is cold and calculating and just kind of being in the moment and following the feeling is somehow more true and honest. And I don't know, people will say real um, you begin by talking about the heart's mind in the first three chapters of the book, and you, and then the second and third in particular, you talk about uh, the sins of the heart's mind. It's hard for us to think that that we can sin in our thinking. Sin seems like always something that we commit or that is really external to us. It's a it's an action done outside of us. How could there be intellectual sins? Isn't that the wrong category? Isn't there just intellectual truth and error? And isn't yeah. sin a more sentimental or extroverted kind of category? Maybe you could say something uh, about that and then what you talk about when you say the profit of the heart's mind. Yeah. It'd be hard to improve on the Sermon on the Mount, wouldn't it? Um, Yes. Christ just (laughs) blows apart anybody who thinks my sin is only in my action Mm. or in my speech. When he, 
he talks about lust and worldliness and anger and all these things that, that start in t- inwardly. And even if they're never expressed outwardly in speech or conduct, uh, reveal, you know, the sin of our heart. So I do talk about that. I talk about how sin begins in the thought life. And uh, the most popular definition of the most often used word for sin in the Old Testament and Hebrew and New Testament means falling short. Well, it's falling short of what I know that I know what the standard is. You know, I know what it means for to treat my wife with gentleness. I know what it means to, the standard is for me to pray, um, but I fall short of those standards and I'm accountable for what I know. And so I talk about that. But then as Christ mm-hmm. is a prophet, how does Christ redeem my heart and, and, and the mind of my heart? Well, he does so through his spirit and his truth and how he speaks to me. First of all, opening my heart, enlightening the mind, in terms of my effectual call when he caused me to be born again by the spirit that I would actually see, but then also in redeeming the mind. And it's interesting if you think about the book of Romans and the significant pivot in chapter 12, and where does Paul begin? Reflecting upon all the mercies of the gospel he's reflected upon for 11 chapters, where does he begin? And he begins with talking about the transformation of your mind, that you have to think differently now. You cannot have the thinking that you had before. Those old attitudes about work, about marriage, about anything and everything, it all has to change. And you think about it like when somebody joins the military, they don't just give you new clothing. They have to reprogram you. You are no longer a civilian. They change everything about how you see life, God, country, everything. And it's the same as, as a Christian, that Christ as a prophet comes in to renew us. And it's not just showing us what we can know, what we should know. And, but I think this is very important in a postmodern day. I talk about this. It's knowing that I know. You know, postmodernism says we should have a more humble attitude towards truth. You really can't know what's true. And if there's one thing that Christ seems so jealous to tell us, it's you need to know this. And to the the point where, like, say, the uh, some of the early martyrs of the church, somebody said they weren't good for theology, but they were good for burning, which is a terrible, crass way of putting it. But they were so certain of Christ's love for them, so assured of eternal life that they would give up their lives for it. And, and John says this, I write these things that you may know that you have eternal life. So this, this knowledge is very important. This, is, this pushes back very hard against any postmodern drift. And um, I have to say, there's some Christians in our day, even, uh, you know, I'm thinking of a few people in Reformed circles who are just coddling with uh, postmodernism and saying this is congenial to the Christian faith, when in fact it is very hostile towards the idea of Christ as our prophet. He seems very concerned that his people would know. Paul often prays that believers would grow not just in behavior and good love and good deeds, but in understanding. And even even his concern for truth, where he says, you know, do not lie to one another. Uh, we've put aside the old man. That's what the old man did was, uh, you know, funnel misinformation and deceit. And now we speak truth and truth that is known. Good. So then you get then you used to also talk about uh, desire and longings, what the heart wants, because it's not just a passive computer that has right, right. truth in it, uh, but it's it's also um, something that seeks and desires. What can we say about even shaping the heart's desires? Because we often desire something, but either the wrong thing or in the wrong way. 
Uh, this is an important part of who we are. And um, I, th I think it's important to see that in scripture, the word for desire can often be translated um, in a way that suggests a wrong desire, a good desire. Uh, in other words, uh, desiring in scripture is, is a term, as a term is, is often neutral. We have stronger terms that speak of the passions or other things, but uh, what this tells us, I think, is that desires are not necessarily good. They're not necessarily bad. It's, it's what is the object of my desire? Or as John Freeman says, are they out of bounds or out of balance? Those mm. are the desires that are, that are sinful. So it's something that's clearly out of bounds. You know, uh, the seventh commandment tells us that, ninth commandment. Or it's something good, but I've, I've taken it to an extreme. So it's out of balance where... Working is, a, is can be a very good thing, God-honoring thing, but I can become obsessive about it. And so the desires of the heart are that way. But I was raised in the holiness tradition where most of our youth camps, I remember, were about don't do this, don't do that. You know, I, I never remember ever hearing anything on the fruit of the Spirit or, you know, positive things to desire. It was always shutting things down. So I grew up with this mentality. If anything really felt good or was fun, it must be sin. Run. Yeah, I just, <laughs> just go away, you know, run from the light. So, but, you know, George Herbert has this, his quote, and he says, he begins to die that quits his desires. Mm. That God made us as desiring creatures. And so to say you have to shut down desires, that that's another religion. That's Buddhism. That is not Christianity. The Christian faith says instead, we just need to make sure that we are inflaming the righteous desires the good desires that they would trump or squelch or uh, snuff out bad desires. And Proverbs talks about this, that there's lots of places in scripture that talk about this, the importance of inflaming good desires, desiring the right things so that lesser desires eventually become, you know, unattractive to me. I mean, I give some examples of this in scripture. We don't have a lot of time. There's a one, I think, really good illustration that I picked up somewhere along the line that talks about this. And it shows how, in the end, behavior modification is not going to cut it. If you're not working here, if you're not attacking here, what are you doing? So as a preacher, if I'm not getting in there and meddling in the mushy stuff, mm. what am I doing? You know, I'm wasting everybody's time. If I'm not preaching to the heart and to the desires of the heart, what people love and what we love to love. And once you get there, once you can get to that part of that heart, Christ says you found their treasure. And that's where you, the real serious work is done. And I think the Puritans would even say, this is the heart of the heart. Hmm. And this, this, is, this has got to be in the bullseye of any serious disciple of Christ. This is where the action is. As John Owen says, this is where Satan almost always begins his appeal. Not to your, not to your thinking, not to your will. He goes right after desires. You know, look at the fruit. Isn't it good and attractive? Craig, you end the book by talking about keeping your heart. And so much of the, of the book seems to be almost a diagnostic, a wonderful biblical diagnostic manual for sort of understanding ourselves and understanding others with whom we minister. But then that does take us to the place where you, you just went in your answer, which is how is it that we guard our hearts given that they are the place where Satan attacks us first and most and probably most effectively. Yeah. Well, the word keeping in Scripture has a, has a twofold sense because it means, on the one hand, 
I'm safeguarding or nurturing the, the safety of the heart. It's an inward look, but there's also means I'm, I'm watching out for danger. And one of the illustrations I use in the, in the book is, is a garden because when we lived in Philadelphia, we, we grew all the ingredients for pico de gallo for fresh salsa, including the onions and the garlic, by the way, nothing like fresh okay. garlic. But anyway, but you're raising garden, you're doing two things simultaneously. One, I have to pay attention to the plants. You know, I have to break off the suckers, cultivate, nourish the plants, water them, uh, take care of them. But on the other hand, I have to look out where to look, look out for rodents, for my children, you know, other things that would attack the garden, weeds. Uh, the same is, is true in the military. You know, you're looking inwardly. What's the morale of my troops? Are they well stocked? Are they well armed? Um, are there any traitors? But I'm also looking outward towards the enemy and strategically, you know, where's my front and all this stuff. And the same is true of keeping the heart. I'm looking inwardly, so I'm nurturing it. I'm, I'm um, preserving it, but I'm also looking outwardly and protecting it. And that's that twofold sense that comes into play as we watch our heart. Now, one of the things I talk about are the gatekeepers. I talk about the eyes and the ears. And in scripture, that pathway to the heart is, is through what I see and what I hear. And it's interesting, I talk about this too, nothing could be more relevant to our age. And like if you go to the airport and you're sitting there at your gate and you look around the room there in all the chairs, everybody's got wires coming out of their head and they're, they're fixated on the screen. And it's a, it's a good picture of where our modern culture is, but it shows how relevant scripture is. That scripture has understood this. The pathway to somebody's heart is what they see and what they hear. And scripture says you have to, you have to monitor that. You have to be careful. It's funny how the father in Proverbs warns his son about the words of this wanton woman and said, you have to be careful. And we love flattery. And it's a quick pathway, anybody's heart, to either gender. And you have to be careful of what you see. You know, Job talks about making a covenant with his eyes. And uh, I, I think that scripture is so helpful here. I also talk about the ambassador of the heart, the mouth and how this is a good measure of how things are going in our heart. It's a good thermometer. I think one of the things I say is something like this, that if you wanna know where somebody's heart is, just stick around and listen to them because they'll eventually tell you. And Christ told us this, out of the heart the mouth speaks, that a person who is struggling with anger, they will tell you eventually. They will show you, you know? And uh, those things, they just they just come out. Jay Dalma says the heart is like a, a board in executive session. Everything's supposed to stay there, but it never stays there. It leaks out. And eventually that's what happens with the person's heart. It, it comes out. And so these are helpful guides to, to understand, you know, how do we keep our heart? What do we keep an eye on and, and, and watching out for those ways in which the world wants to get in, but also keeping an, an eye on my, myself because my principal foe in spiritual warfare is, is myself. It's my own heart, the, the conception of evil from within. And I talk about the importance of scripture in this. We're asking God in this incredible prayer, Psalm 139, verse 23, you know, to show me any grievous way in me. And that's, that's an incredible prayer. It takes a lot of courage to ask God, show me, show me. It's like, do you know who you're talking to? I mean, he's going to show you. Are you. Do you want to see the results? You know, you can't handle the truth, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> and so, you know, God is very faithful in showing us these things. It's just paying attention to them. And even 
the, the smallest degree of attention to our heart is, is amply rewarded with lots of fodder to repent over, but also uh, lots of righteousness that God will show us that we need to incorporate into our lives. Greg, I wish we had more time to discuss this further. We would commend the book to our listeners, but uh, we thank you for giving us some of your time today. You're welcome. It's, it's good to see you. James, it's always good to talk with Craig. Um, just a delightful person. And this book is uh, something that we can definitely commend to our readers. It's, it's a subject worthy of study. Craig is a modern day Puritan. I'm not the first to say that. Others have to. Uh, not, not affected, but, but truly. And uh, I was interested at the end how he speaks about the gateways of the ear and the eyes. In John Bunyan's Holy War, if you know his other, one of his other great allegories, the Holy War, he describes the city of man's soul. Craig would say maybe man's heart. Um, and two of the gates on the city by which subversion could possibly infiltrate uh, are the eye gate and the ear gate. And I thought how Bunyan-esque for Craig to, to update uh, that picture for us of guarding our hearts by guarding the, the portals or gateways into our hearts. Yeah, I think you're right about that description. He is, he is reflecting Puritan theology and, in a sense, bringing it to us today. I was struck as well when he was describing the eyes and the ears about his image from the, the airport of people looking at their phones. It really is true. I mean, those are the direct gateways oftentimes into our hearts. Well, we are grateful that you gave us some time today to listen to this podcast. We love hearing from our listeners. So if you have a chance to reach out to us, give us suggestions, ideas, criticism, we would be glad to receive that. If you're able to donate, you can do that at alliancenet.org or placefortruth.org. There's a donate button on both of those sites. And if you go to placefortruth.org, click on the theology on the go link, we will give one of you the opportunity to win a copy of Craig's new book, With All Your Heart. And for those of you who don't get a free copy, we would encourage you to go out and buy this book, read this book, think about the truths reflected in this book. And thank you, as always, for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. <laughs>